0: Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. Now, twice a year, we change our clocks, but do you think much about what it all means? Marking time has played a major role in shaping our societies, and we'll hear from the author of a new book about time, the history of Civilization through 12 clocks. Also, as COP26 approaches, we'll take a look at fast fashion and hear one woman's incredible journey from modern-day slavery to become a social entrepreneur and an international advocate. But to start us off today, we're joined by David Rooney. who's the author and a former curator of the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. David, you're very welcome and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on, Mandy.
0: Now, in this extraordinarily insightful book uh, called About Time, as I say, a history of civilization in 12 clocks, we learn that clocks are neither simple nor innocent. They were designed with cultural, political and sometimes hidden agendas and ulterior motives in mind. However you feel about them, they affect us far more than we might imagine. Now, David, I'd normally start off an interview like this by asking, how did you become interested in clocks? But in your case, it's quite clear. Tell us about your childhood and growing up with clocks.
1: Uh, yeah, I grew up in a, a clockmaking family. I was eight years old when my parents decided to set up a clockmaking business and restoration. Um, and so from, from then until I left home, you know, at 18, I kind of grew up with uh, with clocks all, all around me. I mean, the business was carried out from the family home in South Shields in northeast England. And I used to accompany my parents when they'd go and collect clocks from, you know, anything from a small flat to a, a great country house in Scotland or North England. And, and I, so I kind of grew up with the sound of clocks, but also with the, with the stories that my parents were telling the, their clients about these clocks. And the, and the clocks could be really modest. You know, they weren't all fine, you know, beautiful clocks. Some were pretty plain, but every one of them had a story to tell and was really meaningful for the people who owned them. And that kind of stuck with me—the idea that that clocks do more than just tell the time. Um, that that, as as you said in in that introduction, that that they um, they they have hidden meanings and they're you know they're, there's a lot behind their faces.
0: Yeah, you certainly get the sense in in the book that they're very far from tools which just communicate time. They they deliver messages. They've really changed our world, not just technically but culturally and politically. Before we get into that, can you just Tell us how you define a clock for the purposes of the book.
1: Yeah, I wanted to zoom out quite a lot because what we tend to mean as clocks uh, in the West is mechanical geared clocks driven originally by falling weights um, and with some kind of oscillator that were developed in the 13th century. But I wanted to take a much wider view and look at any technology. Um, that had been made with the purpose of charting or marking Mm. the passage of time. So that could be anything from sundials or water clocks to to watches or uh, sand glasses, anything really. I wanted to spot the kind of bigger... Civilization level trends that they were involved with.
0: Yeah, and the fir- one of the first stories you tell is a very interesting one about a sundial, one that c- came to Rome. Tell us about the effect of the power that that symbolised at that time. There's a quote that I was really struck by from one of the commentaries at the time that could have could have in fact been written today. Would you talk us through that?
1: Yeah, that sundial in Rome it was astonishing. Really, it wasn't the first sundial. Sundials had been around for about well, about 3,500 years, but this this was Rome's first public sundial, and it was installed in the year 263 BCE, so about 2,200 years ago, Um, the first public sundial in Rome, and it just had an extraordinary effect on not just the people of Rome, but right up to the present day on all of us. There are kind of two reasons for that. The first was that this sundial, which was mounted on a tall column, right at the heart of the Roman Republic, in the Roman Forum, was like a triumphal column uh, which symbolized the military power of the ruling classes of Rome. In other words, it was a timekeeper looking down over the people that people had to look up to, and it stood for the military leaders. But also, it, it ordered the days of ordinary Romans in ways they'd never had to deal with uh, before that, and that quotation from just a few years after the sundial was installed. So, you know, a quote from 2,200 years ago. It was a playwright who made a Roman character exclaim, The gods damn that man who first discovered the hours, who first set up a sundial here, who smashed the day into bits for poor me and he went on to say when i was a boy my stomach was the only sundial it was by far the best and truest compared to all of these he said because it used to warn me to eat but now you can't eat unless the sun says so and he said this town is so stuffed with sundials that most people crawl along shriveled up with hunger and i just thought i mean that's really modern that idea that we have we, we can only eat our lunch when the clock tells us we can we can no longer eat when we're hungry is a feeling that that feels modern but it goes back thousands of years
0: Yeah and that notion of uh, the, the Romans at the time using the clock to control the daily lives would become uh, prominent again and we'll come back to it when we start talking about the effect of, of clocks during the industrial revolution but can I stick with that piece of of the centre of power and the timepiece or a clock being the centre of power, the placement of that clock, the sundial, and the prominence within its own community, it was an important tool uh, in that community. But uh, clocks became an important tool in the building of empires. When did clocks as infrastructures, those clock towers, and become important as an infrastructural footprint um, at scale?
1: Well, when when we started looking at the, at the growth of the big maritime, uh, empires in like the, from the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries, the major European maritime empires. Um, they well because they were maritime, the the ships needed to navigate, and time and clocks became a technical means by which uh, sailors could navigate safely. That I mean, how that was going to be done was known about in the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries. Mm. It took really until the eighteenth century before the technology. And techniques caught up but the idea of clocks symbolizing the center of power like a clock tower particularly acting as a proxy for the for the rulers kind of standing tall and commanding over the new lands was something that particularly the British Empire um, carried out absolutely at scale in the early 19th century onwards and that was in um, in Africa in Australia Particularly in India, um, after the eighteen fifty seven um, uh, uprising, the first war of independence. I mean, the British really clamped down hard on their control of, of of India, and and a lot of building construction was part of that new control. And they built something like a hundred clock towers, huge clock towers, mm. in Western architectural styles. At the hearts of the indian cities that they now controlled and they were striking the westminster chimes and they were showing western time there's one of them that i talk about in the book in um a place called ajmir in today's rajasthan this clock tower for a new um boarding school it literally wore a metal crown above the faces and it looked like queen victoria (laughs) the empress of india Um, who was proclaimed Empress of India when that clock tower was built.
0: Yeah. In reading this, it reminded me very much of how art was used during the Renaissance as that kind of propaganda tool, if you like. But talk to us a little bit more about the standardisation of of time. And and why was Greenwich chosen, for example, over Washington or someplace else? Was it something to do with that empire building?
1: It was. It was a a consequence of that empire building that had been going on for, for centuries. Standardisation of time is really a nineteenth-century story. The idea that you, I mean, before standardisation of time, the time in your town or city or village was local time according Mm. to the sun, according to what a sundial would tell you, and of course that varies if you travel east or west. And in the nineteenth century, with kind of with with railways acting as a catalyst, railways starting to be built from the eighteen. Twenties, thirties, and then forties. The idea that you'd pick one time for a large geographical area and this, take it as a standard time um, was brought in by the railways to make the operation of them and the safety of them better and easier. But it kind of it was a it was a bigger theme in the nineteenth century, and countries around the world uh, started standardizing their time. The choice of Greenwich was absolutely a consequence of of the british empire's uh strength there was a conference in washington dc in 1884 where the where the western world's diplomats came together to decide on one prime meridian for the world a single a single line the line that passes through the royal observatory in greenwich that would be the origin of all time and space greenwich was chosen and and what what a colonizing act that must have mm. looked like to say that literally all of time in the world will be measured from 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 this place in, just outside of london um, it, it could have gone differently and, and certainly the the french delegates um f- absolutely felt it was an act of imperial kind of hostility uh, and lobbied hard against it for many decades um, but this is the time system we've got today where time references back to that line in greenwich
0: You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to David Rooney, the author of a book called About Time, the history of civilization in 12 clocks. It's an extraordinary journey through politics as David has been curator of timekeeping at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, the very epicenter of the world's clocks, as we've just heard. David, could you talk to us a little bit about the role of the clock in the Industrial Revolution?
1: (sighs) I mean, yeah, clocks are hugely important in the Industrial Revolution for so many reasons. Um, it, it's often, I mean, it's, well, it's often thought that, that the Industrial Revolution was sort of the, the time when most working people uh, were ruled by time for the first time, as so many people moved from the um, from the from the land, from rural areas, into cities, into factories and mills, and they started working by time rather than by output um but i mean but i think it's a much longer it's a much longer tale actually i think we've been ruled by the clock for thousands of years but the industrial revolution sped things up in so many ways the idea that um you you clocked on and and you clocked off was very significant there's also a sense of resistance to this idea that you were being controlled by the boss by the the landlord or the or the mill owner and I, and I talk in the book about, about some examples of what was probably a very widespread sense of resistance and people fighting back. I mean, it's often talked about people smashing up looms, the Luddites uh, in the textile industries, but people smashed up clocks as well because clocks stood for something bigger. They stood for this sense of, of, of control, of, of people ordering us, um, and of moral concerns increasingly as well, uh, the, the factory working conditions. And then in the 19th century, um, in the industrial age, the amount that working people were drinking alcohol, mm-hmm. even down to the fact that we've got time restrictions today on when we can drink alcohol in pubs, is down to 19th century senses of kind of industrial morality. It just it pervaded everything.
0: Yeah, I love the term you used, that it was used as an instrument of moral control. David, could I just take you forward a little bit? Now, we talked about how the clocks became very powerful and controlled us from on high. But when did we get a bit of power? When did clocks become a portable device and how revolutionary or was that revolutionary in a a sense itself?
1: Well, the first the first mechanical clocks, the, the geared clocks, um, that that we tend to think of as clocks were a 13th century invention, but they were very large and expensive, and and you know public clocks in churches and monasteries and and city halls, or the huge astronomical clocks in places like Strasbourg or Prague or Lübeck, um, and then as time went on, they started to miniaturize watches. Timekeepers that you could carry about your person, probably introduced about fifteen hundred, the very early sixteenth century, and of course not everybody had access to a watch to start with. But they got cheaper and they got easier to make, and and then more and more people got them, and then some really interesting ideas grew up alongside. For instance, in the sixteenth and seventeenth century, the idea of from the English Puritans, largely of like a work ethic. And a sense that time could be wasted mm. and that time was God's time, you therefore shouldn't waste it, got kind of hardwired into the into the the hardware of these watches. You could get Puritan watches, which were very austere and undecorated to remind you that, you know, time was God's time and, and not yours to waste.
0: Yeah, we've, we've moved very far from then where we're carrying portable devices with us with time every second. And we're almost reaching perfect synchronization now in a timekeeping sense. Can it evolve further? Is there another book in this, David?
1: I think there's always another book to be said. And, <laughs> and, and, and in this one, I mean, I did, I did come right up to date mm. to think about the clocks that surround us today. Of course, there's the ones that we can see on, the, on walls and on our wrists and, and cell phones and so on. But there's this hidden and, in my view, quite, um, quite alarming uh, infrastructure of h- hyper-accurate clocks mm. that have been starting to be built since the 1960s that make the whole world work. You know, they make everything from computers and telecoms to power supply. And the basic infrastructure of life runs through these clocks that are hidden from view. And the more I kind of think about them, the, the more I think there's a story to be told on how we've built a world which which runs only on clocks. And I want to ask the question, what would happen if it stopped?
0: Well, um, sadly, one thing I've learned about clocks through this book is and time. We can't control it and we can never own it. Um, Sadly, we've run out of it because that's all we have time for. I highly recommend this book to anyone with even the mildest interest in politics and history. You will not be disappointed. We leave it there. That's David Rooney, author of About Time, Civilization Through Twelve Clocks. David, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Mandy.
0: You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Nashreen Sheikh is an international advocate for eradicating modern-day slavery. She has an extraordinarily compelling story of how she escaped not only forced marriage but child labor and extreme poverty risking everything that she had to experience freedom. And now she's an independent businesswoman. She's a really impactful voice around the world for the 40 million people who remain in modern day slavery. Alokoma Calpine is a lecturer in supply chain management in the School of Marketing at TU Dublin, and they're both very passionate about sustainability. And recently they spoke at an incredibly powerful seminar, Sustainable Fashion Insights from the Industry. I might start with you, Nasreen. You're welcome and thank you for taking the time to join us.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Sadly, our discussions around sustainable fashion very often start on the high street by being critical about chain stores. Seldom, though, do we hear firsthand about those who make those items or make those clothes. You, Nasreen, were the only girl in a Nepalese village of 2000 to ever have avoided the fate of arranged marriage. Can you tell us about your extraordinary journey from that tiny village to the city of Kathmandu where you worked making textiles and garments?
2: Yes, um, when I look back, it feels like my birth makes an absolute miracle that I'm alive and connecting with you and Talk in Ireland. Just incredible. Um, I was able to escape forced marriage, child labor and extreme poverty. Um, I come from a very dusty, undocumented village, which, which is not found on any map or book. Um, a village where children are born onto the floor of their family homes, and neither birth or death records are kept. This is where I was born, and I began my journey as an undocumented person. And in my village, every single young girls, every single young girl are was being forced into marriage. And when my own older sister was arranged into marriage at the age of twelve years old, that's when I heard from my mom that I will be next. And that's something that really hit me. And in in my village, there is no, there's no role model. There is, like it's very, very male-dominated society. Women is completely, you know, suppressed and their, their voices are suppressed. So um, as a as a young girl, you have nothing to look up to. And, and for me, it was like all i did is like try to connect a little bit with the nature in the village but everything around around humanity felt very very uh, oppressive so my life seemed dis- uh, destined for the same oppressive path and i think i became a child labor between the age of 9 or 10 and six of us lived and worked and slept in a 10 by 10 room without a bathroom or access to clean water I remember that 10 by 10 room, we were splashing cold water on my face, trying to stay awake. And there were moments when I felt like my little fingers were working as fast as the machines. And if we did not meet our deadline, we would not get paid at all. We were forced to work almost every single day for seven days a week for 10 12 and sometimes even 15 hours a day and only then we would receive less than $2 a day in the sweatshop we did not even had a bed so the large pile of clothes that i was making every day at night i would fall asleep on those clothes with my colleagues you know and sometimes i would dream like where are these clothes are going to who would wear them and because the room was 10 by ten room, the windows was covered up, the door was locked, and we were six people eating, sleeping, living there. sometime it was it was really hard for me to breathe, and I felt like... They were woven, those clothes were woven with the energy of my suffering like pure suffering, those threads. So I tell people, like, if you don't know where your things come from, where your clothes come from, you might be consuming human suffering. And and, uh, uh, not might be, you are consuming human suffering because there are millions of people who are still stuck in this slavery right now.
0: Well, it must be an incredible... um... An incredibly difficult story that you, you are reliving and, and telling us, but through sharing that story and your experiences, you've had an impact and have improved the lives of many, I'm sure of it. Um, can you talk to me about being an undocumented person and what that really means? We hear that term bandied around a lot, but what does being an undocumented person mean for the individual?
2: Being un- undocumented means like you have no identity. And uh, when you don't have identity, you don't have a voice. When you don't have a voice, then your own rights is taken away from you. And then people, the like illegal businesses or the businesses that does not follow the ethical and uh, uh, um, any good, uh, like these bad people, I would Mm. say, the people who don't believe in humanity, they use these people, you Mm. know? So these undocumented people are being sent to these undocumented sweatshop and these undocumented sweatshop is connected to these small factories. Small factories are connected to the bigger factories and bigger factories eventually is the top CEOs are making these monies, you know? So basically, I feel like uh, undocumented people are being their rights, even basic, basic human rights is taken away from them and they're voiceless and they're forced to work in these situations. And it's, it's not just, um, uh, just my generation. It has been a generational system where my father didn't know how old, how, how old he was. And then it came to me and then I became a part of child labor. So we are carrying ancestral, uh, trauma within these underserved communities and still today millions of people are not documented and when they're not documented they're working for these illegal sweatshops and they're producing and working long hours and not being paid.
0: Yeah and it's 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 like a, a never-ending cycle so you're forced to work in these factories, have no access to education and then the, the likelihood is your children will do the same and you can't break that cycle of poverty but You did break the cycle. You founded and became the executive director of Local Women's Handicraft. And now, as I said before, you're a powerful international speaker advocating for their rights. How did you move from living in a country where only two percent of women were business owners surrounded by those businesses that were effectively built on modern day slavery to become a social entrepreneur yourself? How did you do that?
2: You know, that journey is very, very challenging. And I feel like it was, um, I believe in humanity so much. And that's what my life experience showed it to me. Uh, when I was a, when the sweatshop operated for almost two years, and after that, I became a street kid. And most of my other colleagues, they went to find jobs in another sweatshop, but I chose to be in the street. And being in the street, it gave me a sense of freedom uh, of just seeing the things moving around, and um, that's how. In Nepal right now, 10,000 plus women and girls gets into human trafficking. And in my circumstances, I found somebody, or I met someone who turned out to be a really compassionate and very kind person and i met him with the help of dog you know Mm -hmm. he loves his dog and i was in the street and that dog comes near me and i like you know he wants to just connect and through that uh, person leslie john became my mentor and teacher for almost uh, 10 years and he gave me education and with that education i was able to understand first of all my own story that that sweatshop is not it's it's a against human rights it's it's a human rights violation the things that was happening around me was human rights violation so once I was able to understand this situation with the help of education. I felt like okay, I need to do something, you know. And what I had in that time is only the skill that little bit I have learned in that sweatshop. and then I seek for this microfinance loan. And because I didn't have document, I had many, many challenges that you know it will take me forever to explain this whole story. Hopefully, I will write a book about it. But eventually, I take up this microfinance loan. I buy my own machine. I started to make my own little purses. Mm. And once I make my own purses, it's made out of with love and care and kindness. And when I give this to the stores, they purchase and and then it inspires me slowly to help more women who have been into the similar situation, who are still stuck in the uh, forced marriage or sweatshops or being very poor. I started to train one woman and that led me to train another woman and another woman. And when we were six women, we decided to open our own small store, a shop we called Local Women's Handicraft. And that Local Women's Handicraft shop literally became a hub for activisms and, and journalists and activists were coming and they were like talking about how can we solve this problem, you know? Mm. Because it's... it's there is there is a lot of poverty that our heart melts when people can travel to these countries like India and Nepal and Bangladesh I want you to travel and see these people faces how much we are stuck in cycle of poverty and slavery and we need help so we were like how can we help and that's how we started this local women's handicraft and you know I it's like it was so much focused on the mission of really empowering these local women with the skills and knowledge so they can speak for themselves because that's the true empowerment I feel when people can speak for themselves.
0: This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. We have with us today Nashreen Sheikh, and we're joined also now by Aleco McAlpine who's a lecturer in Supply Chain Management in the School of Marketing at TU Dublin. You're very welcome Aleco.
3: Thank you Mandy. I'm delighted to be on the show.
0: Aliku, can you talk to us about um, Nasreen's story there uh, seems very far removed from the individual but what can we as consumers do to become more educated about the the effect of the unsustainable fashion industry and and learn more about where these products are being made and what we can do to help?
3: Yeah so for consumers the entire fashion system really needs to be dismantled I think that We need governments and fashion bloggers and celebrities. And it's not just the imperative for consumers. Um, We have seen that creating awareness or telling people how their clothes are made has little change. Um, Even when people know about the social and the environmental costs of fashion, it doesn't really curb their desire. And, you know, an example of that is that after the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh, where 1,100 garment workers died and 2,600 were injured, fast fashion sales went from strength to strength. And I suppose it's not just the consumer's fault. We didn't wake up one morning and decide we need to spend all our hard-earned money on fashion items. And often we hear that argument from the brands or, you know, it's the bad consumers. But fashion brands have identified a campaign to change the perception of clothing
0: Mm. from a
3: functional investment or vital protection to an extension and affirmation of one's identity. And This is a phenomenal achievement on their part, and it's entailed a number of economic and psychological adjustments, which is essentially guaranteed a 400% growth in the industry in the last 20 years. And I think from the consumer's perspective, that want and the need and the earning will always exist, Um, but we need to change how it's manifested.
0: So the number of clothes described as sustainable has quadrupled, but unlike food labels such as free range or organic, which are regulated and carry penalties for misappropriation, sustainable isn't regulated. So how do we really know if any of any of this is real when, when we're buying these products?
3: That's so true. In, in the last four years, the number of clothes described as sustainable has quadrupled among fashion brands in the US and the UK. And I suppose consumers are being bombarded with messages about organics, recycled fibers, environmental certifications, vegan, eco conscious collections. And at the same time, these brands are telling us that the garments are disposable and we need an outfit every week. And and I see companies now are using sustainability as a marketing ploy. So, of course, consumers are confused. Um, And you see that made from recycled plastic bottles, but there's no hard data on how much of the garment is sustainable or or what that means. It's also vague and arbitrary. Um, One of our national papers ran a story on a fashion retailer who will unveil a clothes recycling option at stores. We have to look at what does that really mean? You know, how can these clothes be reused or worn again? You know, often our recycled garments are being sent to emerging economies like Kenya and Ghana who 10 years ago would have received good quality 2nd hand items, and now they're getting cheap damaged items, which they cannot resell. And they do end up in landfill but just not in our country, land
0: One of the things that I find is very limiting about our discussion around sustainability and fashion is how narrow it always becomes. But can you talk to me a little bit about the interconnectedness of the environmental and human rights issues, like the stories we just heard from Nasreen um, and the erosion of the environment and beyond just because of the consumption in this industry? Yeah,
3: so the, the environmental aspect of The fashion industry is astounding. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has calculated the fashion industry produces 10% of global carbon dioxide emissions every year. And to put that into context, the fashion industry emits about the same quantity of greenhouse gases as the entire economies of France, Germany and the United Kingdom combined. I mean, we're producing 10 billion garments annually and we're using up 1.5 trillion litres of water annually on garments. And I I just don't think that would be possible if we were paying workers a living wage because then these brands wouldn't be able to produce at that volume. And the overproduction of fashion and the climate change that comes with that, it's all having a severe impact on the environment in the regions where it is produced now. Like, even if you you look at cotton and a a simple T-shirt, it can take 2,700 litres to produce the cotton needed to make one T-shirt. And in some cotton-producing regions of the world... Entire rivers and seas have dried up, like the Aral Sea in Uzbekistan. It has dried up because of irrigation to cotton fields. And that has been you know, called one of the planet's worst environmental disasters. That impacts on the locals' livelihood, their fish, their water they need for farming. And then we look at the water pollution. Um, and thanks in part to weak regulation and enforcement in the producer countries, like in Bangladesh, Um, wastewater is commonly dumped directly into rivers and streams. And what you're looking at here is a cocktail of carcinogenic chemicals, dyes, salts and heavy metals that hurt the environment, pollute essential drinking water and kill all the aquatic life. So while we're all sitting here in the West or in the developed world worrying about the effects of climate change in the future, people in these least developed countries are suffering enormously now.
0: Um, Nasreen, can I bring you back in here just to pick on something Aleqay said a moment ago about the the living wage issue? We often hear, hear that term living wage, but what does a living wage actually mean in an emerging economy where clean water has to be paid for? It'll it'll it makes a huge difference to have something applied strictly like that in in a society where water is not taken for granted and clean air is not taken for granted.
2: Yes, that's such a great question. I feel living wage is such an essential, it's very, very essential to the laborers and to the people who work in these factories. And I would like to pay attention, like what happens when people don't get paid living wage, you know, it means they cannot afford a clean water, they can't afford uh, safe shelters, they're not having access to any food that can give them nutrition in their bodies, you know, they're not able to send their children to the school, which creates that vicious cycle of suffering, you know, and, and if the companies can pay a living wage, it will, it will just change the whole cycle it will literally like give people a healthy body healthy mind and healthy um well-being to create like uh having access to living wage like in our center in our local women's handicraft we are beyond like going more ahead uh with um living wage and making sure that people are receiving seven keys we call like seven keys for global human rights which is our environment within our uh, workshop needs to be very healthy and protected and we provide clean water nutritious food safe shelter quality education healthcare and access to technology when you don't have these basic basic needs what happens it's it stops our growth and it, uh, it's it's um, it puts us into uh, negative cycle of suffering that goes and passed down to our children. And then that's why we have over 40 million people in slavery right now, which is ever in history ever recorded. Like this number is like, like we live in a connected world. And at the same time, that slavery number is going higher and higher. And most of those people are women and girls, you know, 71% or 70% of them are women and girls. And so I feel like living wage is so essential and every factory or every manufacturers should and must pay these workers a living wage so they can have access to basic human rights, so they can have clean water, they can have nutritious food and safe shelters. And if they have that, they will create more beautiful garments they will create more beautiful and you know sustainable goods to the for the world instead of uh, being stuck in these 10 by 10 room and you know some of my uncles they have started to work when they were 9 or 10, and they passed away when they were around 26-27, because they were working every single day for 10-12 hours, and they were not having a clean water, they were not having nutritious food, and what happens in the uh, after 10 or 15 years of working, their eyes started to become blind, and when they become blind, they become dependent on the society, and the society was not strong enough to support him, so he passed Away. So, like that, a lot of the undocumented people from these rural villages are. they just die very early age and they live life with very much suffering, like their tooth throats, their stomach, they, have, they live with so many disease and plus they're forced to work in these factories. So I feel like people and these factories needs to bring the stories of these people, of these workers in the front line. And they can, if they will tell the story of these people, they can pay the living wage. It's possible in this time. So um, I just feel like it's very essential.
0: I'll just come back to you, Aliko, briefly on this, because I know it's an area that you've worked on for some time. What is happening in the space of um, the living wage? Is there any any initiatives that we can look out for?
3: There are some positive things happening in this space, um, particularly legislation that's coming out of Europe. So Germany has brought in some legislation. They have this new Supply Chain Due Diligence Act which requires companies to make sure the social and environmental standards are observed in their supply chain. So it's putting the onus on the brand that's importing or purchasing from smaller companies. And so they must monitor their own operations, but also their suppliers. And then they have to kind of act if something is wrong. They can't ignore the violation or they themselves will be fined. And I think this is really positive because companies can't turn the blind eye to what's happening now further down the chain. Um, because it could potentially be sued by a garment worker or a supplier. Then, nearer to home in the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority have published a green claims code, um, which is to help businesses to stop misleading customers. Mm. And so companies have been given time to amend their green claims, or the sustainability claims, before being audited. And then the CMA will take action against anyone that's found greenwashing.
0: Well clearly regulation has a huge role to play in the future but so too do the manufacturers. Can I leave the final word here to you Nasreen, what tips can you give us to try and be more sustainable in our own lives in terms of what we buy and what we purchase?
2: I feel like consumer really needs to connect from the source of manufacturing and ask questions Um, You know, a lot of people in the Western world have access to internet and mobile phone, Um, just Google, you know, and educate yourself about supply chain think beyond the price tag and consider the people who make your clothes or your you know the coffee that you drink or the chocolates or even electronics Uh, if you take the time and read the label and ask the question who made this and um, also if you can support ethical sustainable fair trade brands Uh, local businesses and you know there are a lot of uh, small businesses that is from grassroots level they're trying very very hard to uh, to end slavery to fight poverty and businesses like local owners handicrafts you know who is very much committed to fighting slavery through fashion how can we as a consumer um, research about these businesses put them together Highlight them and 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 support them, and especially in this holiday season uh, when we are trying to buy gifts and things, you know, you want to give gifts to someone that you know that's made from love, made from care, and it's going to, uh, you know, not harm the nature and the humanity. So if, by supporting these small businesses, you are giving a hope. To these people in those underserved communities, and uh, um, you are also being a part of uh, change because of these fashion industries. This every major supply chains have a slavery and it contains slavery. It will take time, and uh, um, and and by doing the homework for all of mm-hmm. us is very very important because if we don't become responsible consumer we see that right now because of covid you know how many like you know 231 million people needs like aids humanitarian aids and we are in a epic moment right now that we have a choice either choose to embrace the humanity and choose to embrace the earth or we ignore it and we feel like, okay, somebody else will fix and something else will happen. That is just going to take us down and down and down. And and we live in the fear. So we need to let go of that fear and start doing our part. Start, you know, buying one fair trade scarf and then, you know, buy another shirt and be that advocate person in your community. So that's how I would say, yeah.
0: Nasreen, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. We really do appreciate it and I'd urge everyone to to look at Nasreen's TED Talk, How to Record Silence. It's probably one of the most heartfelt and passionate speeches I've ever heard and thank you both for sharing your stories and your advice with us today. Nasreen Sheikh, Alako, McAlpine, thank you both. For your work in this area and thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. My thanks to those guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan with Stephen McLoon on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof, and then it's Gavin Riley with News Talks on the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through
3: innovative training and upskilling.